Thank you. Let's pray that God would help us to uh, think about those words. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit through the pages of scripture. Uh, Teach us, uh, correct us, spur us on, we ask. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are in the government and someone comes to you one day and says, I can tell you about something that will improve people's physical and mental health. It will make people more generous in giving to charities. It will strengthen marriages. It will lower the crime rate. And it will promote ideas of equality, compassion, consent and human rights. It's got a proven track record. It's been shown to promote economic development, lower infant mortality, higher literacy and educational attainment is achieved, and there's more robust membership in non-government associations. And furthermore, it won't cost the government a cent. Wow, you would think, incredible. This must be the best thing ever for society. What on earth is this wonder thing? Well, the answer is, is people becoming Christians and then living good lives. How can I justify that? Here we go. Atheist social philosopher Jonathan Haidt has observed that surveys have shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer-lived and more generous to charity and to each other than secular people. Harvard School of Professor, a health professor, Tyler Vanderweel, and journalist Jonathan, John Sinoff wrote an op-ed piece for USA Today in 2016 entitled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. Amongst other things, they observed that research suggests that those who regularly attend church are more optimistic, have greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. Furthermore, I've read that it's been reported that in Sydney after the 1959 Billy Graham crusade, the crime rate dropped. I think it was for about a year. I've often referred in the last half year to Glenn Scrivener's book, The Air We Breathe, uh, which outlines the decisive role Christianity has played in the development of ideas such as equality, compassion and human rights. And then there's the sociologist Robert Woodbury, who published a paper in the American Political Science Review back in 2012 entitled The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. And his research apparently incredibly decisively shows, or incredibly credibly shows, that in the majority world countries, places such as in Africa and Asia, the presence in the past of Protestant missionaries has been associated statistically, at apparently a statistically significant level, with more economic development in those countries, better health, lower infant mortality, higher literacy and educational attainment, and more robust membership in non-government organisations. In a word, not only is Christianity good for the individual in this life and the next, but, according to these studies and people, uh, is good for society as well. In fact, almost the best thing there is for society. Now, uh, this concern that Christians should have for society in the broader world is one of the chief things I want us to get out of this final uh, 
week as we look at the book of Titus. We're up to the final chapter, chapter 3, uh, 15 verses in it. And the sermon uh, is entitled, as you'll see on the uh, sermon outline, Saved for Good. And uh, firstly, I want to think about doing good to the world. That's verses 1 to 8, and we're going to spend most of our time there. And then briefly, just some brief comments on point 2. Don't get sidetracked, verses 9 to 11. And then finally, final remarks, verses 12 to 15. But mainly, we're going to be in section 1. Okay, chapters 1 and 2 of Titus... We've been thinking about the call to live good lives, to live godly lives, primarily in the context of our families and our church. But here in chapter 3, for a few verses, or in a number of verses, we see that there is a call for Christians to do good in the broader world. Uh, verses 1 and 2 give us some specific instructions with respect to doing good. And then in verses 3 to 8, we see the gospel basis for doing this good. Let's start uh, with, firstly, the instructions. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, Paul seems to have political leaders in view here, but some of the principles, I guess you could also apply to other leaders, such as uh, you know, one's boss at work or teachers at school or whatever. But I'd like to focus on political leaders, our governments. Now, we read elsewhere in the New Testament, specifically in Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, that governing authorities are established by God and that they are there to promote good and to punish evil. Now, clearly, fitting in and being subject to an authority which is seeking to promote good and punish evil is in everyone's interests. It makes for a safer, better world. Think if we all decide that we weren't going to obey the road rules because we didn't feel like it. You know, you can imagine the chaos that would result. But what if the laws of the land don't conform with what we'd like to do? You know, I don't feel like revealing all my income to the Australian Taxation Office. Or I don't feel like obeying the road rules today. Or perhaps I actually feel like selling some of the private information I have access to about people for profit. Or I really feel like punching that guy at the pub or slapping my husband, or whatever it may be. Often, people don't feel like being subject to rules and authorities. And I suspect this would have been the case for people in first century Crete. You would know that this letter was written to Titus, who was serving in first century Crete. And I think in pretty well every sermon I've given or I've heard on Titus in these last few weeks, we've heard a bit about what the first century people of Crete were like. So I'm going to give you a new quote about the first century people of Crete from the Greek historian Polybius, who wouldn't have been in the first century, but it's roughly in that period. He tells us the people of Crete were constantly involved in insurrections, murders and internecine wars. Nice. And then I think every sermon I've heard on Titus has quoted Titus 1.12, which describes how one of Crete's own prophets has said of the people of Crete, uh, that they were liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Now, I suspect that an instruction to be subject to our rulers is unlikely to have got much enthusiastic traction on the island of Crete in the first century. But can I say that I think perhaps modern Australians may sometimes also struggle with the teaching uh, that we should be subject to rulers and authorities? We don't always feel like doing what the governing authorities have to say, whether it be the government, the police, the ATO, the council, the laws of the land, whatever. 
particularly given the current prevailing you-do-you culture, which is probably an updated version of looking after number one. You know, think about politics. What do we do in politics? We tend to vote for the people who do the best things for us, personally. What's in it for me? Uh, Kerry Bartlett uh, is the ex-federal MP uh, for this area. He was in um, federal parliament about 15 years ago. And he recently spoke at our seniors' morning tea, and it was a really interesting um, uh, talk. And he told the story of a woman he spoke to while door knocking. You know, prior to one of the elections, he was door knocking the local area, talking about policies and the like. And with respect to one of the policies which his party was promoting uh, in that election, he met a woman at a door who said as follows, well, I'll be worse off under your policy, but I'm still going to vote for you as I think it will be better for Australia. Interesting. Now, the reason why that story is so interesting is because it's so unusual. How many people don't vote in their best interests, but vote in what they think is the best interests for others? It doesn't come naturally in Australia today or in first century Crete. So Paul doesn't just say to Titus, tell the people to be subject to rules. He says, remind them to do it. They needed to be reminded. I think because it's unlikely to have come naturally then, and possibly it doesn't come naturally to us today, be subject to the rules and authorities. Now, a good question which some people may then have is, is there a limit to this instruction? Should we always be subject to the earthly rulers? Now, if we look at the totality of scripture, uh, the answer is in fact, no. There are limits to obedience to the government. So when our duty to God comes in clear conflict with our duty to the state, we have to go with our duty to God not the state, which is where our first reading from this morning came in. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter says to the Jewish religious leaders in response to their instruction that he and his friends no longer teach in Jesus' name. They say, don't teach in Jesus' name anymore. And Peter says to them in verse 29, we must obey God rather than human beings. You've got to put God first where there's a conflict. So if the government said today that we should not evangelise certain groups of people, or if the government said today you can't preach on certain parts of the Bible, for example, the return of Christ, we'd have to obey God rather than the government. Now, both these things I've just cited are things which are the case, I believe, in various countries of the world. But can I say that in Australia... I think there are very few situations where what God wants is in clear conflict to what the government says. Sometimes we might think that some of the government's laws are silly. Some of us might think, oh, wearing seatbelts is silly, or wearing bike helmets is silly, we're in a nanny state, or uh, wearing masks in COVID is silly. Um, that doesn't give us license to ignore the laws of the government. We need to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, John Stott, who I've been uh, referring to quite a lot in this series, um, speaks on this, and he refers to Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, which also talk about our attitude to governing authorities. And he notes that the intention is that the governing authorities should uh, punish evil and promote good. And he says that as governments are doing this, Christians should be very ready to cooperate with them. However, says Stott, we cannot cooperate the state if it reverses its God-given duty, promoting evil instead of punishing it and opposing good instead of rewarding, rewarding and furthering it. So if we were living in a Nazi-occupied country and we were hiding you know, Jewish people in our basement, 
uh, we'd be quite entitled to ignore any Nazi instructions to bring out your Jews so we can send them to the camps, obviously, because the government there is not promoting good and punishing evil, it's doing the exact opposite. Now, once again, I think there are very few situations in Australia where the government clearly promotes good and punishes evil to a point where we need to disobey it, although there may be some. And I guess there's a bit of a grey area here. And so if you ever felt you're in a situation where you thought, I don't think I can do what the government says here because they're promoting evil and punishing good, I think the thing to do would be to talk to one or two other Christians about it to make sure that that really is the case and it's not just your own personal or political leaning. But if you're convinced that it's there, I guess you have to do what your conscience would dictate you to do. The point here is we're subject to rulers, but there may be a few exceptions, but in Australia I don't think there are many. So we've got to be subject to our governing authorities. That's only part of the story of verses 1 and 2. Because it's not just good enough for us as Christians to be law-abiding. We've also got to have a positive impact on society as well. See, the passage says in verse 1 that we should be ready to do whatever is good. Whatever is good. Now, that's pretty broad, isn't it? We should be concerned to do good to all. Now, we're, we, we often very, get very into trying to do good in our homes and we are often want to do good in our churches, but we need to do good to all. Whatever is good, which includes our local community, broader society and, in fact, the entire world. I think what this is talking about here, it's another way of saying we need to love our neighbour. And we know that Jesus interpreted loving our neighbour in the broadest possible ways. So... How can we do good to all? Now, there are a few specific examples, and it's, this is by no means exhaustive by a long shot, of doing the good mentioned in verse 2. So, for example, it tells us that we should slander no one, be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. Pretty broad term, slander no one. Always be gentle towards everyone. It's not very specific, it's hugely broad. Now, I'm just going to talk about one of these. That's the exhortation to be considerate. Think of the people you come across in your average week, outside of your home and outside of church. Are you considerate towards them? So you drive home uh, today after church. If you drive home, someone does something stupid on the road. Are you considerate to other drivers? Perhaps they're not being stupid. They're just driving. Are you being considerate to other drivers? You go to the shops, you get caught in a queue. Are you considerate to other people there? You go and watch your kids play sport. Are you considerate to the referee and the supporters of the opposition, even if they're not being considerate to you? Considerate. But of course, um, doing good to all takes in far more than being considerate to everyone and displaying those qualities outlined in verse 2. There are oodles of things which we can do to do good to all. And just a few things which sprung to mind for me were, obviously, we're doing good to all if we promote evangelism, if we promote mission, if we promote discipleship around the world. Uh, we do good to all by praying for them. We do good to all by doing our jobs well, by giving money to charity, uh, to volunteering, perhaps, for charity or community organisations. Perhaps because of your personal circumstances, you find yourself in a situation where you can actually promote equality, 
or consent, or human rights, or personal safety, or education, or national development, or science, or culture, or sport in some way, whether it be here or further afield. Do good to all. Now, it's this Christian concern or social concern which has prompted the development of many, in fact, I suspect most of the charities which are around today in Australia. And did you know that it's Christian social concern which has also been influential in the development of modern sport? Yes, you heard correctly. So modern sport as we know it really developed in the 19th century in the United Kingdom. And it developed under the strong influence of two major organisations, the public schools, which are like our private schools, and the churches. Why did these two groups, why were they interested in promoting sport? Well, because they thought it promoted community and it promoted character. So good community and good character. And in the cases of the church, they also believed it promoted ministry options uh, as well. Did you know that one in three English Premier League clubs were started by churches? Interesting, isn't it? So people are concerned to do good for society. We've heard many times about Christians who've made great social changes and been influential. So William Wilberforce with the abolition of the slave trade. And on our, um, I think it was on our, get, our 10 o'clock service getaway a year or two back, I talked about the Earl of Shaftesbury, the 19th century English politician who has uh, helped bring about um, law reforms for the mentally unwell. He helped bring about child labour and factory reforms, mining reforms. He promoted education for the poor. He was chairman of the Church Missionary Society. Uh, he was, um, sorry, he was president. No, he was chairman of the Church Missionary Society, president of the British Foreign Bible Society, and was involved with the YMCA, the YWCA, and Barnardos. So I think it's good to consider um, what good are we in a position to do those, to those outside of our family and our church context, like in the community and further afield, what good are we in a position to do? What are some good things that we can do? What can we do for our local area? What can we do for Australia and overseas? Now, obviously, we can't do everything. We've got limited time. But what are some things that we can do? It will be worth reflecting on what you either are doing or what you could do. Now, uh, that was where I wanted to spend most of our time this morning. But the question may arise, what's the motivation or what's the reason for doing this? Now, I've often said that Paul, in his letters, when he gives you an ethical instruction, he almost always gives you a doctrinal reason for doing it. You know, because of these truths, therefore go out and live this way. And in this case, it seems to be that the doctrinal truth is the gospel, the message of salvation, which should prompt these good works. So verses 1 and 2 describes doing certain forms of good works. And then in verses 3 to 8, it provides the gospel-based reason for doing it. Now, it's not initially as clear as it should be, I think. So verse 3 starts, At one time, we too were foolish. That's how it commences. Now, I don't like to do this particularly very often, but in the original Greek, there is a, t a short word there called gar, which is usually translated as for or because. Okay, And for some reason, the NIV translation doesn't have the for or because in the translation. But if you go to the ESV translation, they do. And so the ESV translation starts, for we ourselves were once foolish. So it's just given us an ethical instruction, and then it goes, well, for, and then it goes on to outline the gospel. right? And so the idea here is that in some way, what, what's happening in 1 verses 1 and 2 
relates or springs from what is described in verses 3 to 8. And that actually gets made a bit clearer when you get down to verse 8 at the end of this section, um, where it says, This is a trustworthy saying, it's referring to the gospel, and I want you to stress these things, that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. So there they spell it out for you, uh, that, that it's, it's this truth which should promote this sort of life. Now, the gospel of salvation um, is, is a very good summary of the gospel in verses 3 to 8. In fact, probably one of the best and clearest summaries in the New Testament. Uh, John Stott conveniently summarises it for us as follows. Stott says that these verses, verses 3 to 8, describe, firstly, our need for salvation. We are sinful, guilty and enslaved. Secondly, the source of our salvation, which is God's loving kindness. Thirdly, the grounds of our salvation... Not our merit, but God's mercy on the cross. Fourthly, the means of our salvation. That's the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Fifthly, the goal of our salvation, our final inheritance of eternal life. And sixthly, one of the evidences of our salvation, which is the diligent practice of good works. Quite a good summary, isn't it? Now, how actually is it that the gospel motivates or encourages us to do good works. What's the relationship? Well, it seems to me in three ways, uh, by giving us information, motivation and power. Firstly, the information. If we've responded to the gospel, we want to understand what God has to say to us. And so we want to read his word. And here in verses 1 and 2 and elsewhere, we read that God wants us to do good to all. Okay, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Good. So it gives us the information. Secondly, I think reflecting on the gospel gives us the motivation to live God's way. I mean, if someone has done an awful lot for you in real life, you're usually pretty motivated to do the right thing for them, aren't you? You think, oh, that, that person's done so much for me, whether it's your parents, with me. You know, when my parents got old, I was highly motivated to look after them as best I could um, because of what they'd done for me. When we realise how much Jesus has done for us, we want to be highly motivated to doing the right thing for him. So there's the motivation. But thirdly, uh, there is the power. So the Holy Spirit gives us power to live godly lives. Did you notice in verse 5, it talks about Christians being renewed, renewed by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives us the desire and power to do the things which God wants us to do, which includes doing good to all. Now, that doesn't mean that doing good to all will always be easy. I mean, sometimes it's not easy doesn't mean that doing good to all is what we will always want to do. Sometimes it won't feel like it because, quite frankly, we're still, you know, partially sinful, aren't we? Or we're still sinful as well as being saved. But the change is real. God's Spirit does changes to make us want to do these things and enables us to do these things. Matthew Paris is a British writer and broadcaster and former politician. And he's a self-described Atheist. He wrote an article in the Times over in the UK in 2008, which was headed, As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. Now, that's a pretty interesting heading, isn't it? He writes as follows. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects and international aid efforts. These alone will not do, 
education and training alone will not do it. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Now, Paris grew up in Africa and returned there at various times, and that's his observation. And he's an atheist. Interesting. God gives us the power to do the sorts of things that God would want us to do. Doing good in the world. Now, uh, just the last two sections, and I'll be much briefer here. Uh, second uh, heading is don't get sidetracked. It's a major point, I think, of verses 9 to 11. The verses start by talking about foolish controversies. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Now, the reference to genealogies and the law suggests that some of these controversies may have related to various Jewish matters. Now, um, there's nothing wrong with being involved in a debate on spiritual matters. Jesus was involved with debates on spiritual matters with the religious leaders. Paul strongly debates spiritual matters, particularly when it relates to the gospel. So why are the, are the debates referred to here foolish controversies? Well, we're not specifically told, but I think it's a pretty safe bet to conclude that it's because these controversies don't relate to core Christian concerns. They probably don't relate to the gospel or subsequent good and godly living. These uh, controversies are probably distractions from the main gain of what Christians then and they should be concerned about. Now, sometimes we can f fall into the trap of getting caught up in foolish controversies. Sometimes we can get over-engaged with matters of church practice and we get obsessed, obsessively interested in the, the, the exact length and time of church services or the exact style of music that should be played or, or, or whatever. And sometimes I think Christians can get um, unnecessarily hung up on non-central doctrinal matters like exactly how is the world going to end? Now, we know Jesus is going to return, but is the millennium a thousand-year period or a period of time? And is it before or after? Or when is, you know, um, is there a rapture? You know, I mean, a lot of Christians have views on that, and it's, and it's good to have a view, but it's not a central issue. It's not a core gospel issue. It's not uh, a core Christian living issue. Good to have an opinion, but let's not get involved in foolish controversies uh, over that. Let's not get sidetracked. Let's stick to the main game, gospel and living good godly lives. I think that's the point. Then final remarks are in verses 12 to 15. And I guess these uh, final verses remind us that um, Paul and Titus, to whom he writes, are parts of a network of relationships with other believers. I mentioned Artemis, Tychicus, Zenus and Apollos. And as Christians today, we're also involved with networks of believers as well. Perhaps in our family, here at church, perhaps in your workplace, perhaps you're involved with Christian organisations like Crew or um, Scripture Union, or, or just Christians you've gathered along the way in your life who you still keep in contact with. Um, these are obviously people who we want to support and do good to as well. Now, I think verse 14 uh, perhaps could be taken as a, a summary of a major theme, if not the major theme, of Titus, where it says, our people, that's Christians, must devote themselves to doing what is good. Let me conclude. I trust we know here that we are not saved by doing good works, right? We're saved by God's grace. 
We're not saved by doing good works, but once we are saved, we're supposed to be doing good works in our families, in our churches, but also, as I've been thinking about this morning, in our community and in the broader world. So my big idea for chapter 3 of Titus and perhaps the whole book is that we are saved to do good. Let me pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray that this distinction will be clear to us, that we will be realise that we are saved by your grace, not our works. But then as saved people, you have good works for us to do. You have good for us to do in our families, with our friends, at our church, in our communities, but also we need to do good to the world. Help us to understand how we can do that in our particular circumstances. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.